leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. Um, what I want to talk about is uh, igniting the imagination of many, and I'm going to share some stuff that I've been doing in and around the work that I've been making. But fundamentally, what um, kind of started happening for me is I felt like um, writing... Uh, in terms of, like, I've written for film and I've done television and, and I've designed games and, and I started to feel kind of restricted by uh, a three-act structure within screenplays and writing for commercial breaks for television. And I started to really want to explore more what it meant to kind of tell stories in, in the 21st century. You know, how, how could I effectively um, create work that was going to resonate, that was going to be more pervasive, that was going to be able to effectively reach more people. And so in a lot of ways, I, I felt like what I was shifting towards was this this idea of being able to look at um, the worlds that I was building and trying to make them more accessible to more people. And I'll explain that throughout the, the course of this talk. One of the things that I think is really kind of amazing about the time that we sit in is um, I feel like it's reflective of the silent film era. You know, I feel like the grammar of cinema was shaped during that time and I feel like we're at a similar place where um, it hasn't been shaped yet and we have the opportunity to shape it. So uh, I make an analogy to when silent film started, you know, they would, uh, you know, point a camera at a stage and they would effectively shoot uh, actors on that stage. And then one day they realized that they could take the camera outside and actually shoot, you know, and they, they developed uh, the, you know, effectively the language of, of cinema as we know it today. So I think as, as we kind of look, um, there's such a fragmentation around uh, the, the potential of different screens and devices and ways to reach people, as Gary was mentioning in his talk. And, and I've taken this from um, a really great uh, thing called the conversation prism, and I just place story in the center of it because I'm really interested in that idea of how can story be used to help bridge effectively what is this fragmented landscape that we live in currently. So as I'm working through the the work, I'm, I'm kind of balancing it across these three areas. I'm balancing it across, obviously, storytelling. Uh, I want it to be playful in some particular way, and I want it to be social. But inherently, one of the most important things that I'm kind of thinking about when I'm designing and doing this kind of story design is I'm thinking about the value. And one of the things that I've started to kind of consider was this idea, and it's, it's kind of more of like a question. You know, it's kind of looking at story as a utility. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, right now, arguably, we're in this phase where the attention economy is, is, is really a critical thing. You know, getting somebody's attention is a really big deal. Getting somebody's time, I would argue, is even more of a challenge. And um, getting somebody to come back to something that you made is almost next to impossible. So I've started to think more about this idea of story as a utility in the sense of how can it actually have entertainment value, but how can it also have a greater purpose? And an example is there was a, an application that was made in the United States called Broadcaster. And Broadcaster was a mobile uh, application that you would download. And you could go and you could walk and they populate it with all these stories. And so you could be walking through, you know, effectively like Sydney, and it would trigger these different audio stories in different parts of the city. It was sort of like a walking tour, I guess you could say. But the thing that was interesting about the app is it started introducing people 
to different things that they didn't know about, you know, different restaurants or different places to go. And story was a conduit to that discovery. So people would keep returning to that application and using it as a utility. So I think it's interesting as we kind of move forward to kind of consider some of those ways, and, and I do it within the work that I make, you know, to try to figure out ways that maybe there can be more value to that story. At the same time, there, fundamentally, I'm kind of always looking and saying, you know, how, you know, why is somebody going to care about this? How are they, you know, going to be emotionally invested in the work, you know, in the storytelling? And um, I think I'm always kind of looking and searching for that emotional core. Um, and I think it becomes even more challenging within a fragmented landscape, you know, because, it, you know, when, when I'm kind of working across various platforms or devices or screens, less is more. You know, a lot of it's about the questions that you leave and, and the room that you let people kind of lay their imagination over it. But, you know, without that emotional core, it becomes very challenging. And the last part is really about it being fun. And when I say that, I mean it being social and participatory um, in a way that I'm letting people into what I'm doing and I'm finding the right place for them to be a part of that experience and allowing them to uh, come into that and feel that they can express themselves in some way. So really fundamentally, it kind of works across these. I always use these as the design principles that I, that I kind of put at the foundation of the work. And then the other thing that I embrace is this idea that creativity rests at the edge of failure. You know, so I'm really, it's all about experimentation, right? It's all about the rules haven't been written for this. And we find ourselves in a very unique time where we're actually really able to experiment and and challenge the conventions of what story is. So I'm going to share over the, the next remainder of the, the talk here uh, a number of tangible examples from work that I've done and break down some of the design principles and the way that I'm thinking about it and also share where things worked and where things did not. The, the first example that I have was affiliated with a, a, a film that I made. It was my second feature film. It was called uh, Head Trauma. Had its um, Theatrical release, uh, I'm sorry, it had its world premiere at the LA Film Festival. <coughs> and then from there it went out on 17 screens theatrically. I did my own um, theatrical distribution for it. And then it rolled into DVD. Where it actually got really interesting was when I decided to recontextualize it. And what I mean by that is I, I actually decided that I was going to challenge the conventions of how it was presented in a, in a linear form. And so uh, one of the things that I did was I, I took it out and I booked it into museums and into alternative spaces and into college campuses and things along those lines. And I built an experience around the movie. So when people, and I'll give you kind of like a user journey of it so you can understand what I'm talking about. When people would be making their way to the, to the cinema or to the venue, I, uh, we wrote software that rang all the pay phones up and down the block. So when they would walk by a ringing phone, they would answer it and they would hear this kind of foreshadowing fragmentation of a conversation because the story is, uh, is about um, uh, a drifter who comes back home after uh, 20 years to settle his grandmother's estate and finds it condemned and inhabited by squatters and he decides he's going to try to save it. 
while, while clearing it out and trying to save it, he strikes his head and starts having these reoccurring nightmares. And so it's a psychological kind of horror tale. So as they were walking by and they would answer the phone, it'd be this fragmented conversation. And then they go around the corner and it's small down there to the right. Uh, but there'd be a street preacher who was preaching fire and brimstone and he'd have these little religious comics. I don't know if anybody here knows Jack Chick, but Jack Chick would make these small like religious propaganda comics that would be placed in phone booths and they would be placed in truck stops and rest stops. And they're really quite, um, quite, uh, quite at times humorous, at times really kind of creepy. Um, but um, what was really exciting was the comic that we made, if you took it and you held it up to the light, you would see all these codes and ciphers in the pages of it. And the comic was actually um, done by uh, a fan of my first film, The Last Broadcast, Stephen Bissett, who had co-created Constantine and Swamp Thing with Alan Moore. So that comic itself was like another set of clues in, in, in terms of the story. And so when people would make their way into the cinema, the movie was rescored by musicians and DJs. Uh, characters would emerge from the audience and scare people, kind of a very William Castle-esque, I guess, in a certain respect. And then uh, we wrote software that allowed people to interact with the, phone, uh, with the movie. So we would put a, a screen up that would say, you know, no matter what you do, danger, danger, do not call or text this number. And very large percentages of the audience did, probably over 90%. And then uh, once they did, we had them. And effectively, what would happen would be the movie would play and we would push a meta-narrative to everybody in the theater. So it would get a little kind of crazy and chaotic at times. Phones would be going off and, and people would be answering the phone. They'd be connected to somebody else that was in the theater and they'd be talking and then we'd be pushing these messages that was this meta-narrative and this mystery. And um, effectively, after the movie would end, um, they would go home and they'd have that comic and on the back it said, do you want to play a game? At which point they would go onto a site uh, for the movie, which was exactly the same as that comic. It was an interactive comic. And that site functioned for about two years or more, or actually longer than two years, and had all these things hidden underneath the surface. So when they're there and they're kind of looking at the comic coming to life, their phone rings. And when they answer the phone, we build a back-end system that scaled so it was all you know, automated and sound designed. And so when they would answer the phone, they would hear uh, effectively the nemesis from the movie. And he would ask him these probing questions. You know, he would say a variety of questions based upon the verbal response. It would launch video or audio on screen. So at this point, their phone's wrong, uh, you know, has rang, they've answered it, it's some character from the movie that they've just seen, and anything that they're saying into the phone is making the website do different things. So at a certain point, the character says to them, you know, tell me something about yourself that nobody knows, at which point, whatever the person said into the phone, we would capture and loop back over their computer speakers, at which point they'd be totally freaked out, and, um, and there'd be, a, like, uh, they'd start trying to close it and we built like a fake exit box. So when they would hit that, we deliver an instance, we know they hit that instance, we deliver a message to the phone and said, where do you think you're going? We're not finished yet. <laughs> at, at which point uh, we would kind of loop uh, everybody into these um, 
conference calls and sometimes they had actors in them, but it was everybody that was going through the same thing at the same time. I think what's important about that arc is it goes from a communal experience to a mobile experience to an online experience back to a communal experience. Um, and uh, it was really kind of interesting to play and push the boundaries of what was possible. We did a lot of different things with this particular work um, that, uh, you know, kind of looking back on uh, greatly informed kind of the direction as I moved forward. But a lot of it was always about experimentation and pushing the boundaries of what was possible. One area that I became really kind of fascinated by was this idea of hyper-local and global how effectively could I do something in the real world that then could be have a cause and effect with a global audience? Um, and so um, the next uh, project that I'm working on is is called um, Hope Is Missing. It's a it's a science fiction horror film that uh, Ted Hope and Christine Vachon are producing uh, in conjunction with me, and it, it it went through the Sundance Screenwriters Lab and. Um, I went back to the lab with uh, an interesting uh, kind of proposition. I came in with this whole world that I had built. And when I kind of came to um, the, the lab, the screenwriter's lab, which I went to, I was like, this is what I want to do. Yes, there's a screenplay here, but there's all these other things. And so I had mapped it out. And, you know, I think at first I thought I was kind of crazy. But then um, as we went through, uh, it was exciting because we were able to kind of explore a richer world. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it uh, became kind of a catalyst for one of the first new labs that Sundance has in a while called the New Frontier Storytelling Lab, which mixes technologists with storytellers. And it's a really vibrant kind of uh, exploration into storytelling in the 21st century. So pandemic basically was this opportunity to take this world, which effectively is, is about a, a strange sleep virus that only affects adults and uh, uh, basically leaves the youth to their own devices. So it's kind of like a Lord of the Flies tale. And this, the, the, the film takes place 90 days into this outbreak. But I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to create something that actually started at the initial outbreak? And that's where pandemic came in. So pandemic tells the story as it's first happening. And uh, I called it pandemic 1.0 because the idea there is to kind of release these things almost like software. So you push them into the world and you see where they break, you get the data back from it, and then you figure out how to move forward. And what was really interesting about what I'm about to tell you to frame it is that we did this and I went off and wrote four additional drafts of the script after doing what I'm just about to describe to you. So I think it's important to note that these types of things don't just have to be used on the end of a project. They can actually be used in the, in the development of what you're doing and to further enhance the work. So um, what effectively we did was we took this experience um, to Sundance and it was an opportunity to kind of uh, put it in front of about 40,000 people. And ironically, the, or not so ironically, the, the theme of the festival that year was being there. And so I thought, wow, how can I make it, you know, hyper-local, it's happening at the festival, but global at the same time. How can I get people involved who are outside of the festival entirely? And so uh, the project uh, fell into the New Frontier section. So it was in the New Frontier section, and then there was a short that was in competition. And basically, the construction that I came up with was that we were going to run a simulation at Sundance that people had 120 hours to stop the spread of a fictional pandemic. 
Um, now, two really cool, interesting things were that I uh, reached out to two groups. One was called Medic Mobile that works with um, uh, tracking births and disease in third world countries using mobile technologies. And the second was a group called Freedom Lab who are out of Amsterdam that looked at look at connected societies and the impact of them. And together we kind of crafted two kind of design challenges or questions. One was how does morality change in the face of knowledge over time? And the second was if two different people have valuable information, how can they potentially meet each other? And so that became the basis of what effectively was an experiment with pandemic, which was a, a foray into this idea of purposeful storytelling. On one level, it would hit very hard in the genre side, but then on the other side, it would actually be creating a simulation where we could look and see how things spread socially, we could model off of actual pandemic data, and we could make a step towards public health messaging that was more in line with younger demographics. So the construction of this uh, was consisted of uh, this, this a, a large amount of things that we did that were very challenging. But the one thing is, after going through it, and you'll see it subsequently in, in the second work that I'll show you, um, I was trying a lot of things. Like I, I've said, I've often said that I could have done it with like a third or, or even half of what's on there and could have effectively delivered the experience. But I wanted to try it and see what I could do. And I'm gonna walk you through it. Um, for those who can't read it, it had like data visualization within it. It had a short film at its center. It had a book, it had uh, comics and short fiction, it had connected toys, it had like a whole gaming layer to it, uh, secret locations, uh, mobile app, and an online destination, and it had these physical objects that were hidden all throughout Park City. And there were uh, 50 bottles of water and 50 golden objects that were just hidden throughout Park City. So at the center of this was a story about a boy and a girl who are coming to terms with the fact that their mothers contracted this virus. They're not sure what to do. They're not sure whether they should stay, whether they should go, whether they should kill her. And that short film we day and dated across a multitude of outlets. We day and dated it uh, across FearNet, which went into about 20 million homes domestically uh, in the United States. We uh, went out through the YouTube screening room. Uh, we had it on the mobile app for the festival, which was a scheduling app, and it was really cool when you would get the app and you look at it, have all these icons on the front like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Pandemic. So I thought that that was a really cool thing. And then um, effectively it was in theaters. Online, people could come to a, a site and these photographs are all pictures of people with their eyes closed. And when somebody was on the site, what they would do is they would sequence these. They would take them and line them up on the timeline and try to figure out how to unlock something by creating a sequence of them. And when they would create the right sequence, it would unlock geo-coordinates to one of the hidden objects in Park City, and would it also unlock a phone number. So uh, throughout Park City, we took, and uh, Google provided me with these Nexus S phones, which have NFC technology in them, which is near-field communication. For anybody who doesn't know what that is, uh, it's similar to a QR code, you know, when you shoot a, a, a barcode, but it's inherently in the, film, uh, in the phone, so you don't need to turn on an application to use it. So you can actually walk up and close to something and use it as a way to trigger an action. 
So you don't have to turn on the camera, you don't have to turn on your phone, you don't have to turn on a certain app, it's just there. And they're using it for a variety of really interesting things. They're using it for water conservation, they're using it to determine traffic patterns, and they're using it for some, and, and it's, one, it, it's part of a $1.4 trillion mobile transaction industry. It's, it's intended to be part of digital wallets and things along those lines. So I was given these phones, and um, I circulated them in 50 biohazard bags you know, and they had hand cranks and very little instruction of what somebody was supposed to do with these phones. Now, what was cool is somebody would get a phone and, and uh, as I mentioned in the previous slide, people would be unlocking coordinates and unlocking the phone numbers. So all of a sudden these bags would start ringing when somebody would get one and they'd answer the phone in the bag, even though it said biohazard on it, they'd still answer the phone. They'd answer the phone and uh, effectively they get into these conversations with people from all over the world. And the, those sessions averaged anywhere between 15 or 16 minutes, and on the longer side, up to an hour and a half. And that call would go something like this. It would go like, oh my God, there are these golden things that you have to find, and there are these bottles of water. And inevitably, the person on the other side would say, who are you? What is this about? You know, and they would, they would end up working together. So there was this hyper-local instance of these phones and this global kind of eye thing where these people were helping them to try to find these different things. So the instruction would come through that they were to make their way to a special space that we had set up, which was like a C uh, center for disease control. And this space uh, told a story over the course of five days. Over those five days, uh, there were a number of act breaks. One, the first act was everything's fine, and then feeling sick and loss of control, adults are gone and end of the world, question mark. So at any point when you will go into this room, it was constantly changing. And it was making use of real-time data and doing some interesting things because one thing that we did is if anybody tweeted a hashtag, a special hashtag for it, pandemic 11, at the time, it would save one life. If somebody went in and used the app for the festival and checked into a movie, we turned each of the theaters in Park City into different cities. So when they would go in and they'd sit down at the Egyptian and they'd check in to see a movie, lo and behold, that would become an infection in London or an infection you know, in Los Angeles. And so we were using it and abstracting this data that was already happening and using it as a way to tell a story. So basically what would be told to the individuals who had the phones and as they would go out to find these things, is that they needed to return to the space. And when they came back to the space and they put the phone down on the surface table, which was a touch table that was in the center of the room, they could not only manipulate the room and the walls, but they could also see when they put that phone on the table, everything that that phone had shot, you know, anything, you know, whoever had touched that phone. So thematically, we were playing off of that idea of a virus. So when somebody would bring in a bottle of water, and set it down on that surface table, the whole room would change state. So it would say, you've just saved you know, 200,000 lives. And then it would push that message out to everybody who was playing. Meanwhile, there were uh, 20 actors who we were shooting with, who had been scripted with, with 100 tweets each. The interactions by the players uh, would effectively determine who lived and died. So some of those actor, you know, some of those tweets just exhausted themselves and the person died. In other instances, the interactions prolonged their lives all the way to the end. So we had no idea who would actually make it to the end or not. So off to the one side of the um, Center for Disease Control room was this 
crypt that I built that had all these photographs with people with their eyes closed. So when you would go in, you were given a, a, a flashlight, and that was the only way that you could move through it. But if you actually had one of the phones, you could walk up to any of the pictures with their eyes closed, and on the phone, that same person would appear and their eyes would open. And you would start to realize that those people were actually connected to the various golden objects that we had distributed all throughout Park City. And those golden objects all had stories associated with them. And so lo and behold, you would start to realize how the virus had actually spread. You would start to understand the emotional weight of what was going on within the story. And you would see how these people were inevitably connected. Um, everything kind of culminated at the end where five of our characters made their way to a rec center that had a generator in the story. And that led into a, a secret show that we did with Kid Koala, uh, who's a DJ. And effectively, at that point, everybody who had been a part of the, the, the experience were kind of, you know, we would stream out what we were doing, and it was a really cool way that we kind of connected everybody at the end. The, uh, the project had a lot of different people who were involved in it. We had probably over 40-some people who worked on the project. Um, and I'm sure later I'll be asked a question about the cost. So I'll just say that, um, you know, in kind it was about four hundred dollars to $500,000, and hard costs were probably about thirty grand. So a lot of people worked on the project, and there's a whole bunch of different reasons to why. So that's pandemic, and that's looking at hyper, local, and global. The next thing that I wanted to kind of expand on is this uh, idea of socially connected objects. We're at this point in time where we're, you know, we're in the internet of things, right? Where everything from everyday objects to cars and appliances are going to be connected to the internet. That creates a really interesting opportunity to kind of lay story over top of that. And then this next example I'm going to show you, um, and I don't think that this could be any further away from what I just showed you, um, but it does use similar de design principles uh, within the work. So this is Leica. Leica is a robot from another planet. She's a, she's a, she's a scientist who on her planet um, effectively has been decimated by climate. And she's come to Earth to gather data and try to figure out how she might be able to save her own planet. And it's also a foreshadowing tale about what could happen to our own planet. So Leica is kind of this idea of using story as software and hardware. She's actually a connected device. So when she travels, she collects altitude, data, air quality, air temperature, geolocation, and she pushes it back to students who are effectively working using math and science and geography, collaborative problem solving and creative writing to help Leica on her journey. So effectively, this is um, uh, where I stepped in and I thought, you know, I really want to do these participatory stories. I want to roll up my sleeves and see what it's like to actually co-create, see what it's like to actually do purposeful storytelling that can be more meaningful. And so we, we worked with two fifth grade classes of at-risk students, one group in Montreal and the other group in Los Angeles. And together, they worked to move Leica effectively across North America. So we had a team of photographers that would travel with Leica, but there's a couple really cool design elements in this. One was Leica never had a name until she came in contact with the students. The students named Leica, and because they named Leica, it became more of a, an emotionally connected thing for them. At the same time, 
I could have easily shot this against a green screen, but we chose not to. We chose to go wherever the kids' imaginations wanted to go. And because it was in the real world and the kids would leave school, they would think about it and they would realize like is out there somewhere in the world. You know, and that was a very powerful thing for them that connected them to the story. So over the course of 10 days, uh, Leica traveled over 2,000 miles, went to 56 different locations. The, the work spread out to eight different countries, and we ended up with like over 700 uh, student projects that came in from all over the world. And what was interesting about the way we did this, and this is another very simple design tip, um, we had a component where online people could download uh, a very simple version of Leica that they could color like a coloring book or a version that they could kind of cut out and make into a little robot. Both those versions, and I think this is important for any time that you're going to have user generation or, 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 or somebody giving something back to you, they had uh, a similar quality to them. They all had hearts on them, like the way Leica was. They all had a certain type of mouth, the eyes, the antenna. So then when you would look at the, the, image, the gallery of what came in, it would be all kind of rooted and connected by common design principles, you know? And it was easier for them to understand what to do with it. What was really fascinating was we, th this project started by me sending a tweet out that said, uh, who wants to be involved in a project that uh, is with at-risk students, a robot, and a rocket launch, right? And I ended up with like about 150 tweets that came back and we narrowed down with like 50 collaborators that we ended up working with. Um, and effectively at the center of that was that connected toy. What was really exciting about it is that in, um, in May of this year, we uh, sent Leica to the, this is her actually 100,000 feet above Earth, and the, the students worked to kind of get her there. So that was like a trial run, because this project ends with uh, Leica going into space, so all the artwork, all the stories, all the data that she collects will actually be sent into space. So when the kids look up at the night sky, they'll be reminded of how far their imaginations can carry them. And so that really kind of gets into this, uh, this aspect. And I encourage you guys, we're looking for host families for Leica. She'll travel the world in 2013. So if you're interested, she's going to be going all over and stopping and visiting people. So if you want to play host to her, please let us know. So... That really raises this issue of this idea of those formerly known as the audience, you know, because I started to look at them as collaborators. I started to look at them in different ways and started to think about how I, how I could open up process and figure out, uh, you know, how I could push the limits of what I was doing, but at the same time, you know, build more dynamic kind of stories and worlds. The second part of the trilogy, which we just recently launched, is, um, is a project called Wish for the Future. And uh, effectively, we base it off of this uh, Buckminster Fuller quote. And, um, that, you know, that's, that's pretty simple to do. I'm kidding. Um, so uh, what we do is, like, people look at how they can make the world work for 100% of humanity. And effectively, what they do is they make a wish uh, in 140 characters or less. 
then people grant that wish with a creative act of expression. It could be a song, it could be a, a, a video, it could be a collaborative action. You know, so if somebody made a wish about sustainability or improving food in schools, then there might be something that was done as a community garden. Everybody came together and, and did some really interesting things around that. We're partnered with the Buckminster Fuller Institute with it. But what's really kind of exciting about it is we kind of take it out and we, we start to do these open design things where we start to mix um, kids and adults together. And in 2014, the project will go uh, to uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, and will take kids and mix them with world leaders as they attempt to problem solve some of the, 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 what we're facing in the world. But it's also a connected narrative story because the wish, the grant, and whatever artifacts the kids create are then sealed away in one of seven time capsules for 100 years. And the time capsules are actually connected devices. So what they do is they actually send messages back to the people who granted wishes, reminding them of what they granted. So it's very much uh, this idea of looking at creating stories that can be social, you know, they can be connected, they can be personalized, and they can be pervasive. And, and I really try to bring this into the work in terms of the way that I'm working. The, a lot of the exciting opportunities are a lot of the things that I just talked to you about are kind of able, once you kind of figure out some of the design elements, you're able to kind of take them and apply them to a variety of different things. Because for the longest time, I would always be said, when I would talk about the head trauma stuff, or I, a lot of my stuff tends to be psychological, horror, thrillers, whatnot, there was almost this thing within me that was like, okay, I'm going to go the total opposite direction and demonstrate that the design principles can work across a variety of different work, because I would always be asked that question. And granted, early adopters are naturally within science fiction or fantasy or within horror, so they're already there. But I think what was really interesting and what's exciting about this time is that ability to kind of abstract that and, and kind of say, okay, here are some core design principles. So one of the, one of the others that I've used uh, a lot and used to great effect is this idea of scarcity and abundance. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a very simple example, which was kind of, which is kind of fun. Um, there, uh, I was approached to write a book by a major publisher about storytelling and technology. And the advance and the deal for the book was really kind of lame, to be honest. And so I said, thanks, but no thanks. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, it'd be really interesting to experiment with this idea of scarcity and abundance. And so I sat down and I, I wrote a book which is called Building Story Worlds, The Art, Craft, and Business of Storytelling in 21C. And it's based on a course that I teach at Columbia, uh, which is about storytelling in the 21st century. And I wrote the whole book in Twitter. So I wrote it 140 characters at a time. So over like a 17, it, it, can, it contains like 17 years worth of just experiences in terms of design for storytelling and technology. But it's all encapsulated down into these little kind of 140 character tweets purposely as a way to kind of ignite other people's imaginations around those things. At the same time, um, only the run of the book is only ever going to be 140 copies. So it's being printed and it's only 140 copies. But on every page of the book, it says, please set this book free and retweet using this particular hashtag. So the book will live and die off of those 140 people who purchased the book. 
And then hopefully what happens as it goes out, I'll be able to see what parts resonate the most with them. I'll be able to leave it to be extended by whoever wants to extend it if they happen to use that hashtag. And it's a really interesting kind of experiment where it plays with this idea of, you know, where, where scarcity kind of shifts over into this abundance, right? And, and in the center is this idea of a feeling of some point of ownership or a, being a part of it. So for those 140 people, they feel like they're a part of something that's special, but then they become this really great kind of gateway to the abundance of what the, the book can become. And then obviously once it's in that abundance phase, it becomes spreadable, but then they feel that they helped to unlock those parts of it. So they feel that sense of reward from it. But then at the same time, they have this collectible thing. So they feel like they have a reward from that. So a lot of what's exciting about this time is just taking some of these things and, and finding creative ways to make use of them, you know, creative ways effectively to experiment because Twitter is a free thing. You know, it's not much to create the books. Um, and I, you know, I've sold, I've sold, you know, without any real promotion around it, I've sold about 40 of them so far at $140 a piece. So they're 140 characters, 140 copies and $140. So, which will get me past that miserable advance of what the initial book deal was. So, um, the, uh, the six tips that I have for building a story world for you as kind of takeaways is this idea of being able to kind of take time to evaluate the stories that you want to tell. I think often, a lot of times, work rushes itself to be made because it feels like everything's aligning and that's the only time it can actually happen. I would argue, and I've been guilty of this, that a vast majority of the work that's put out into the world is underdeveloped. You know, it's not developed enough. So I would say, you know, just really take your time to evalu evaluate the, the stories you want to tell. And, and in a lot of respects, it's like, it's really about the why, right? It's the why questions that are really the most important. Once you can figure out the why, then you can easily move into the how. But a lot of work in this space goes right to the how. I need this platform, I need this device, I need a mobile app. There's like almost like this checklist. But it misses the purpose of the why. You know, ask yourself the hard questions. You know, why will anyone care? And is this the best way to tell the story? Um, I think that that's really kind of challenging because you can get very enticed by these really amazing new emerging technologies and these opportunities. And then, you know, let go of a single point of view. I think one of the things that was the most exciting for me was when I started to realize that I could mine themes and the themes would take me further than the characters ever would. You know, because there was this tendency for a lot of people that would move into the space to kind of just take the characters that they had and all of a sudden tell you everything that those characters were doing. I would argue that that is, a lot of the stuff is going to be mundane and boring. You know, the, the character can't be amazing all the time. Then it also takes away a degree of the mystery. But, uh, you know, so I found that those themes can be really amazing. And I think they're most important because they allow somebody to lay something across it themselves. You know, so they can find a personal emotional connection with whatever that is. Um, number four is really critical and it's obvious to anybody that is a screenwriter, but I think it's more important even within this space is how you can show and not tell. You know, a lot of, a lot of the work, and I'm sure no knock against the 70 odd projects that are in the, the amazing uh, document that uh, will be on Screen Australia's site, but a lot of them are telling you, they're, they're, they're kind of pushing the narrative towards you all the time. 
you know. Um, I'd say make it easy for your audience to become collaborators. There's this amazing thing that happens. It's almost like these participatory surprises. You kind of put it out there and you let them know how you want them to engage, and then they blow you away. They give you things that are incredible that you never expected. They move you in ways that you didn't think were possible. And one simple example of that was when we did the, the stuff with Leica and we put out like a coloring book version of it, I got an email from a, a woman who was a teacher um, who worked with autistic children. And she said that all the autistic children had taken that, that little coloring book and they wrote what they were passionate about in it. Because I forgot to mention the one key factor was the kids initially thought or anybody thought that it was fossil fuels that powered her, alternative energy that powered her, but then they realized it was creativity and passion. And so those autistic kids wrote what they were passionate about, and they took it to the library, and it represented the first time that they all took out their own books. So they used Leica as a gateway to this reading that they wanted to do, which was incredibly powerful, and it was this amazing participatory surprise that we didn't expect. So I think when you can kind of set the stage, a lot of times they'll amaze you. And don't let the world get in the way of the story. Don't let all these amazing opportunities get in the way of what you're actually trying to say or what you're trying to express or the stories that you want to tell. You know, because there's a certain degree right now where there's a, a level of complicatedness to it that will go away as the infrastructure is built out. And my hope is that moving forward, a lot of these things will become more and more transparent. Technology will be transparent within the experience. Same way when you go into a cinema, you know what you're getting, or when you sit down in front of a, a television and, and effectively, or in your living room. So as we go forward, what's truly exciting with the way that Screen Australia is doing this film 3.0, the way that they're supporting cross-platform work, is it's giving this opportunity to create what effectively the grammar will be for the future. And hopefully what will come from it is some of the great works of the 21st century. So thank you very much. Uh, yes, Mike, right there. Hi, thank you. That was, uh, that was fascinating. And my question is, when you're... I'm assuming that you spend time in your own mind just imagining. Is that led by the story and then you've got a certain amount of techno technological information or did you kind of get your technological know-how first? Did you see what I mean? With chicken mm -hmm. and egg, how does that, that work for you? Well, uh, what's interesting is my creative teams have changed quite a bit. Um, so where originally, you know, I was working with my production designer, I was working in conjunction with my co-writer, I was working with, uh, you know, my producer or whatnot. I now have on my team creative technologists, data scientists, community managers, and all these different people. So as we go through, a lot of it will start with the ideas of what I'm trying to say, and I'll try to really distill that down. And sometimes I know, and other times I find it as I'm going through the work, which is just typical with creative work. Um, but I also will look and think about ways that I can use different emerging things that I think that I see that are interesting, but I always run it through a filter, a series of filters, much of which I described in that talk, but a lot of it is always story-centric. It's driven from the story side. So. Hi, you kind of asked, answered in the last question, but what kind of analytics do you use? I mean, obviously you've got data analysts, but you're doing so much. Um, are there any specific tools that you're using? Uh, to aggregate the data analysis. Sure, sure, that's a great question. I, I think in terms of when we did the, the work at, at Sundance, we created our own contextual 
storytelling kind of engine. So we were able to kind of see the various variables that were coming back, how many people were tweeting, what were they tweeting. Uh, we would run that through and use that within the contextual storytelling engine that would affect other variables. Uh, then there was, you know, obviously uh, in that project we were doing some really interesting things where we were kind of scraping the web and figuring out where people were talking about pandemics, where news stories were happening, and we would bring that into the storytelling. So um, I think, uh, you know, and when Gunther talks, he's doing a lot of stuff within that space. But a lot of it, we, we kind of have used uh, and rolled our own own solutions, but people like Gunther are working through standardized systems that are much easier to make use of. Yeah, that are yeah that are more relevant to this type of storytelling. So, is anybody else? Hi. Um, thanks for such an inspiring talk. So I was, I was really, really like the idea of you talking about setting the stage and um, letting people kind of be part of the story making process themselves. But I was interested, do you think about the, um, the like, do you plan in advance the lifespan of your project? Because I imagine it takes quite a lot of time and energy to kind of keep the stage running while that's happening. But do you, I mean, do you sort of have to think, I'm going to invest this much time and then in three months, you know, everyone's just got to do it on their own? Um, like, how do you think, how do you see projects dying, basically, or do they die at all? Well, projects definitely die, that's for sure. I think uh, the one thing that I'm trying to get to, which you know, feels like it's the holy grail, is this idea of this infinity loop. You know, that I can kind of create it and then the audience will become these collaborators and they'll keep it going and it'll be this perpetual motion machine of like awesomeness. Needless to say, that has not happened. But um, I think when I kind of look at it, it's really about this idea of, you know, um, I've found things to be really effective in short bursts and then archiving it in interesting ways and, and being able to sh share in very simple, in a simple manner how people can engage in it. And then a lot of the times in the projects that I have, which is really interesting, a lot of times people who are involved in the community aspects then go on to actually become producers or people who are or who kind of take the whole take hold of it and run with it. So I try to design it so I know it'll have a beginning, middle, and end, but I try to leave it open in some particular fashion so it can continue. That's something I'm still striving for. It's something I'm still experimenting with. Um, you know, because back to my point of that idea of the attention economy and time and action, getting somebody to actually return back is is really challenging. But I found that the more emotionally charged it is the more people want to be a part of it. And so Leica has a long list of all these people who want to be host families to take her all over the world and all these schools that want to be engaged in it. So um, I think that that points to something interesting. Thank you. Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another StoryLabs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.